Hello and welcome to the Europeans podcast. How are you, Katie? Are you away from the toilet floor yet? <laughs> Don't tell everyone. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing, Dominic. I am freshly recovered from a winter vomiting bug, mm. which has been deeply fun. You could have made some pretty interesting... Instagram content. No, thank you. Uh, moving on, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm just very cold um, here in Amsterdam. It's been so cold. We were talking about oh. how um, wet cold feels colder than dry cold, and you've got wet cold over there. Yeah, it really feels, it's been like one or two degrees, and it really feels way colder than the minus six or minus seven degrees cold we had in Tallinn last weekend. Take me out of here. Lucky I'm going to Italy next week. Hooray. Well, that's something cheerful to look forward to. And hopefully the next half an hour is also going to cheer me up a bit after my fun week of illness. What are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to be talking about a rather surprising bit of European queer history. When you think of the countries that have been pioneers with the rights of gay people, you probably don't think of Poland as being at the forefront. But actually, Poland decriminalized homosexuality in 1932, long before many other European countries did so. So this week, we invited someone onto the show who has spent a lot of time unpicking how this decriminalization of homosexuality happened in a country that today is considerably behind on recognizing the rights of LGBTQ plus people compared to other European countries. We'll be calling up the Polish historian of queerness and nationalism, Kamil Karczewski, later on in the show. But first, it's time for... Who has had a good week, Dominic? I'm giving the coveted position of good week to France after it was announced on Friday that the European Commission have given the green light to a French policy to ban some short-haul domestic flights. <laughs> this makes me feel very patriotic. Yeah, I can imagine. It's nice news and yeah, kind of quite groundbreaking actually. And as you're probably aware if you listen to this podcast, short-haul flights are pretty awful for the environment. Taking a short-haul flight is not only bad because it's more likely it could be replaced by a much less polluting method of transport like a train, but also because takeoff and landing are the moments where the most fuel is used. So short-haul flights use up considerably more fuel per kilometre travelled than long-haul flights. And according to the European Organisation for the Safety of Air Navigation, flights under 1,500 kilometres are responsible for 25% of European aviation's CO2 emissions. For those of you working in miles, that's just 932 miles. So yeah, a good reason to feel patriotic, Katie, and you're not the only one. Clément Bonne, the transport minister of France, said he's feeling proud that France is a pioneer in this area. And he described the decision by the European Commission to allow this policy to go ahead as a major step forward in the policy of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Why did they have to get the European Commission to, to give the green light on this, though? Like, what have they got to do with it? Well, this policy was passed by the French Parliament in 2021 as part of the big climate and resilience law. And 
Soon after it emerged, complaints started rolling in from uh, the Union of French Airports and mm. Airports Council International Europe. They complained to the European Commission, which is essentially the executive governing body of Europe. You all know that by now. And they then went on and did an in-depth investigation into the policy's legality. In the end, the commission allowed the policy to go ahead, citing for the first time ever, watch out, things are about to get dorky, an article in the European Air Services Regulation that says a member state may, where there are serious environmental problems, limit or refuse the exercise of traffic rights, in particular where other modes of transport provide a satisfactory service. Bingo! That last bit is interesting. The requirement that another satisfactory mode of transport must be available because actually in the end, it's been decided that only three routes fit into that category. Oh! They decided only to cancel routes that have an alternative train connection that takes under two and a half hours. So the three routes that will be cancelled are those between Paris, Orly and Nantes Lyon and Bordeaux. That's not as impressive as it first sounded. I, I feel like my patriotism is waning slightly. Yeah, you might want to take back the singing of the French national anthem. <laughs> and you're not alone there in feeling a little bit disappointed. The response from environmental campaigners to this news has been lukewarm. Thomas Gellin, a Greenpeace EU climate campaigner, said in a press release that the French ban on short-haul flights where quick train connections exist is a baby step, but it's one in the right direction. Mm. Honestly, it initially looked like it might be a slightly bigger baby step. There were originally eight routes that were tipped for the ban, but one by one, five of them fell, either because the train journeys were just above two and a half hours or in some cases because the routes didn't have regular enough trains between the destinations. So for now, it's just these three routes. But if train connections improve between a few other cities, then they could also be added to the list. I feel like they should take into account the faff of getting to airports in the first place. Oh, I agree. And then the amount of time you have to wait at the airport once you've got there, yeah. So For security stuff. Ah. And lots of environmentalists argue that setting the bar at two and a half hours as the maximum time that a train alternative can take is just too low. Mm. And actually when the policy was first proposed as part of the Climate Citizens Convention, which was a French citizens assembly where regular people could offer up policy ideas, the citizens proposed the any domestic flight should be cancelled if it can be replaced by a four-hour train journey. That seems better. Yeah, but then there were objections from Air France and KLM and it got watered down. Quelle surprise! Yeah, one positive thing about the European Commission's decision is that they insisted that the law must include connecting flights. So originally, connecting flights that like stopped at Paris or Lille and then went on to Bordeaux would be allowed to continue because it wasn't seen as a new flight. But now they won't be allowed to go ahead. So that does improve the policy's environmental credentials. On the other hand, the policy has only been approved for three years, after which it will be reviewed again, something that Greenpeace are not so happy about. 
Mm. But baby steps. Wasn't there also something to do with private jets attached to this announcement in some way? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of discussion around private jets. There's not been any like concrete news yet about what is going to be done about private jets. But yeah, they are certainly public enemy number one right now. And with good reason, uh, they are on average 14 times more polluting than commercial flights per passenger and 50 times more polluting than a journey by train. And France has one of the highest number of yearly private jet flights in Europe. One-tenth of all takeoffs from France in 2019 were by private jets. I did not know that. That's extraordinary. There was this big row a little while back uh, about Paris Saint-Germain, the football team, taking a private jet. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't. I missed that. They took a private jet to go to Nantes from Paris, which is it's really not a very long journey. And it was interesting. Like It was a real indicator of how the mood is shifting because it, it caused a big hoo-ha. People were like, just take the train. Well, that is one of the routes that's cancelled now, so they will not be able to do that anymore. Ha ha! <laughs> Sucks to be you, Mbappe. Maybe it doesn't right now. <laughs> it's um, probably fine. I think he's doing okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Clément Bonne, the transport minister of France, has said that he does think something should be done about private jets. Uh, we don't know exactly what that will be. It doesn't seem like there will be a blanket ban on private jets. It seems, from what I've read, more likely that France wants to tax and restrict private jets and possibly push for EU-wide action. But yeah, this policy is good news in general, maybe not as impressive as it could be, but it is still quite groundbreaking and environmentalists are hoping it's just the first of many such policies. I mean, it kind of has to be the first of many such policies if we're going to have any chance at keeping emissions below catastrophic levels. Who's had a bad week, Katie? Uh, I'm giving a bad week to the European Union's Foreign Aid Department. You've thrown a party or two in your time. Right, Dominic? I don't throw many parties, to be honest. I don't like hosting. I'm scared people aren't going to turn up. Well, that's exactly the thing, right? Like anyone who has thrown a party has probably had this horrible thought at the last minute. Oh God, what if no one comes? This could be a complete disaster. Well, last week, that nightmare came true for the EU's foreign aid department. But this wasn't just any party. This was a party in the metaverse. That's a place where you've been spending some time recently, I believe. Uh, well, I'm going to be spending some time there. Well, not actually in real life. I'm going to, theatrically speaking, I'm doing a an opera that's set in the metaverse in Italy. Very intriguing. Yeah, so I better get to know it. For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, there has been a lot of hype about the general idea of the metaverse over the past year or so. It is this vision of a future version of the internet where we would use virtual reality technology to do stuff like go shopping in a virtual shop or meet up with friends who are actually thousands of miles away, but it would look like they were sitting right in front of you. Obviously, none of this technology really exists yet. Well, no, some of it does. Well, it exists, but it's really crap. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean, lots of companies are interested in making it happen in a way that would genuinely be really, really cool and usable. Uh, the most prominent of these companies is Facebook, which renamed its parent company to Meta a year ago. But even though Meta has poured $36 billion into developing the metaverse already, its prototype of the metaverse is still embarrassingly crap. I mean, to give you an indication of just how crap it is, in October there was this major announcement from Meta, which was that people's avatars are finally going to be able to have legs. No. Because at the moment it is too complicated to give them legs, so people just look like little floating heads and torsos. 
Uh, so yeah, I think it's fair to say that so far, all of the hype around the metaverse has yet to truly deliver. However, that has not stopped various people in charge of large budgets thinking that this is an exciting thing that they need to be engaging with. And apparently those people include the staff of the EU's foreign aid department, uh, because it turns out that they spent 387,000 euros of taxpayer money on the creation of a quote-unquote metaverse platform. Why is that a thing that the foreign aid department of the EU would think was a sensible thing to spend money on? That much money as well. Good question. Um, so this Metaverse website was set up to promote something called Global Gateway, which is a program to boost investment in developing countries. The Metaverse thing also seems to have been aimed at generally encouraging young people to care about the EU. DevX, which is a website that covers development news, they reported on the launch of this EU Metaverse site last month. And a spokesperson for the European Commission told them that it was aimed at 18 to 35-year-olds and that the idea was to increase awareness of what the EU does on the world stage among an audience that is not typically exposed to such information. Mm. Which is fine, although encouraging awareness of the EU among young people and promoting this global gateway investment programme thing seem to be kind of different goals. I don't really get what the connection is. Maybe they were trying to kill two birds with one stone and like promote investment and awareness of the EU at the same time. I, I don't really know. Imagine what we could do with that money at the Europeans podcast. <laughs> the thought had crossed my mind, Dominic. <laughs> so is this a website that I can actually go on like right now? It is. Would you like to have a go? Oh, okay. Don't be scared. I don't like the metaverse. Well, you're going to be spending a lot of time in it soon anyway, so it's it's good to get practicing. All right, I'm going to send you a link now and I will also drop it into the show notes so that people listening can check it out. All right, here it is. Prepare to have your mind blown. Enter the global gateway. Sometimes, even in the metaverse, we run out of space. There are 32 guests in front of me, so I'm in a queue, actually. No way! <laughs> yeah. This thing is taking off. Apparently it's really busy. Should we leave it a little bit and come back later? Yeah. I'll text you when I'm there. Okay, listeners, an hour has passed and I'm still not in. <laughs> I have so many questions. Could it be that this has just blown up and is now a super successful <laughs> EU metaverse? It says there are now only three guests in front of me, but it hasn't changed in the last like 15 minutes. So I have a feeling they're not letting anyone in. Because it's so terrible. Maybe. Did you get to go in? <laughs> I did. So I guess I'm just going to have to paint a picture for you. Unless while we're talking... A miracle happens and you're allowed in. Cool. So I'll just describe what happens when you go in. Uh, the first thing that happens is that you can change the color of your avatar. You can change the color, but apart from that, it's pretty limited. And all the people in this digital EU world look like, kind of like little paper clips. That seems like nicely bureaucratic and EU-y. <laughs> you're right. It's nothing we love more than paperwork on this continent. Um, and then what happens is that you walk around this tropical island and there are some EU posters hanging on the wall, which I was kind of hoping would be interactive in some way. Like you'd be able to walk up to them and they would tell you about what the EU is doing, about healthcare or climate change. Except I tried a few different things like clicking on them and walking into them physically, but they really just seem to be posters. Um, and then you can walk around and look at some digital artworks you can walk into the sea and see some dolphins jumping around. And uh, there's a DJ playing this quite horrible music on a loop. Mm. And that is about it. It's quite clunky to use. 
And it's also kind of disappointing because the promotional material around this Metaverse site talks about how you can use it to get to know new people and reflect on global issues. But of course, the success of any kind of platform relies on lots of people using it. I mean, as I say that, maybe that's what's happening right now. And it's super, super busy. We just don't know. Oh, two guests in front of me. (laughs) We might get there while we're talking. I mean, maybe we should be kind to the EU and maybe it just needs a bit of time to develop. How long has it actually been up on the internet? I mean, maybe. Uh, It's been online since October. Oh. So why am I giving it bad week this week? Well, last week marked the gala event in this EU metaverse, which was supposed to be this big event capping off a wonderful few weeks of digital events held on this weird tropical European internet island. And our attention was drawn to this gala event by Vince Chadwick, who is the Brussels correspondent for DevX, the news outlet that had previously reported on this. Vince reported live from the party, and this is what he tweeted. I'm here at the gala concert in the EU Foreign Aids Department 387,000 euro metaverse. After initial bemused chats with the roughly five other humans who showed up, I am alone. And then he posted what is maybe the saddest video ever taken of his little pink avatar standing on this deserted dance floor. And in the chat, he's written... Wondering if I got the date wrong? Oh. (laughs) It's just utterly tragic. At the time of recording, Vince's tweet has nearly 700 retweets. That's probably why it's now so popular. It's gone viral on Twitter. I mean, this is my question. Maybe this is like a deliberate attempt to go viral? No publicity is bad publicity. This could actually be an example of public relations genius. So apart from the internet blowing up, what, what's been the reaction to all of this? Uh, well, it seems split between people who are mad at the waste of taxpayer money and people who see it as a really cringy example of older people thinking they know how they're supposed to be communicating with younger people and then failing spectacularly. Oh, and there are lots of people from the tech world uh, criticizing how clunky the website is. Um, One person on the original tweet announcing the metaverse called it Windows 94 screensaver garbage. Ouch. (laughs) That's probably quite in fashion right now, no? Yeah, it's kind of retro chic, I guess. And what about the EU? Have they actually responded to any of this? Horrible press. Uh, Well, apart from maybe strangling the website, given that you've been waiting an hour to get on. uh, No, I haven't seen any public response so far to the specific flop of the gala night party. Uh, When DevX reported on this project back in November, Vince did ask them to respond to criticism that this was a waste of money. And at the time, they said... We have a duty to inform citizens about what we're doing. This is an innovative way of reaching audiences that don't tend to access more traditional sources of information. And you can kind of see how this project got the green light from the boss of some department. Like the EU does have this perennial problem of informing people and interesting people in what it does, especially young people. Mm. And all of these buzzwords have been flying around for months about the metaverse. So clearly what's happened here is that Somebody put two and two together and decided, this is a great idea. I mean, look, personally, I think finding ways to communicate with citizens about what the EU is doing is a good and necessary thing. But this is a classic example of people who don't really know how to execute a project like this being given way too much money to execute it badly resulting in a massive waste of money for us, the taxpayers. Mm. And I'm kind of glad that this has got attention because it happens all the time. 
And I think that the more scrutiny there is of the way our money gets spent, the more officials will think twice before giving the go-ahead for stuff like this. Oh my God, you were not going to believe this. It's loading. Ah, we're in. All right, tell us what you see. Oh my God, so who are you? Do I have to put my real name? Put whatever you like. This is the metaverse. You can be a whole new you. Okay, I'm calling myself Euro Robot. Love it. And I'm a kind of turquoise. Ooh. Oh my God, there are loads of people here. How many of them are real though? Am I meant to like talk to people? I couldn't figure out how to do that apart from talking in the chat. And when I was there, there seemed to be sort of bots walking around, but I don't think they're real. I can see someone. I'm going to try and speak to them. Hi, Julian. (laughs) You can't actually say hello to them. You can just click on them and it says Julian. I don't know what's going on, Katie. (laughs) And I think you're right that most of them are bots. I've only found one person that's actually got a name. Oh, there's an art installation about the power of books. It's nice. I've had enough already. (laughs) Can I stop? (laughs) Verdict on the metaverse? Was it worth waiting an hour and a half? Probably not. (laughs) Oh God, I can't believe I have to do an opera in here. (laughs) This is a very good week to become a Patreon because we have a special treat for our Patreon supporters this coming Monday. We'll be opening up our recording session for next week's episode, our Christmas special, to our lovely supporters from all over the world. Hooray! It's a bit terrifying, but I think it's going to be fun. So if you want to come and see how the sausage gets made, then head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast and sign up with as little as two euros or dollars or pounds a month, and you'll get a Zoom link to watch our recording live next week. Very exciting. Although I don't like this podcast being described as a sausage. (laughs) Moving on, we are massively grateful to everyone who has chipped in so far so that we can pay our producers and pay ourselves to do the research that goes into making this show each week. And this week we have a bumper crop of new supporters to thank. They are Eileen Kennelly, Ake Rudolph, Jorge Reyes Ferrero, Nuno Santo, James Griffin, Patrick, Helena Cornu, and the mysteriously named European from the Netherlands in Sweden. Thank you all so, so much. Thank you all. We really wouldn't be making this show if it wasn't for you. So we really, really are very grateful and hope to see a lot of you at our Christmas special on Monday evening. Whoop, whoop. One of the reasons why I'm sad about the current chaos embroiling Twitter is that I've always found it an amazing website for learning things. And one of the things that I stumbled upon semi-recently was a thread by the Polish historian Kamil Karczewski about the fact that Poland was one of the first countries in Europe to decriminalize homosexuality back in 1932. Which might come as a surprise given that the current environment in Poland is frankly grim when it comes to LGBTQ rights. We are talking about a country where top politicians from the ruling party have demonized queer people and spoken of the need to fight, quote unquote, LGBT ideology. You might remember a couple of years ago that dozens of Polish local authorities declared themselves to be LGBT free zones. Some towns got cut off from EU funding as a result, and a court ruled earlier this year that four of these zones were illegal. But the ruling party's campaign of virulent homophobia continues. So how are we to make sense of the fact that Poland went from being 
really quite progressive on this front nearly a century ago, to being one of the worst places in Europe to live as a queer person today. We were really glad to speak to Camille earlier this week about this fascinating part of Polish history. You've spent a lot of time wrapping your head around Poland's decriminalization of homosexuality, which took place in 1932. First, I wanted to ask how groundbreaking this was as a decision. Was Poland one of the first countries to decriminalize same-sex activity? Arguably, two most homophobic countries in Europe now were the two that decriminalized homosexuality as first in the continent. One of them is Poland in 1932, and I don't know if you are aware what is the other country. Is it Hungary? It's Russia. Oh. So Soviet Russia decriminalized homosexuality in 1917, and then Poland was the second one. And of course, it was not out of the blue. I think it was kind of a pan-European debate. There was a work going on on a new penal code in Switzerland at the time, There was a debate in the late 20s, beginning of the 30s, just before Hitler came to power in Germany. In 1933, Denmark followed suit, introducing basically in its new penal code very similar provisions to Poland. I think Russia and Poland, in both cases, these decisions were path-breaking and quite courageous. And is there a a simple explanation as to why Poland was so ahead on this? If I had to shortly say what was the main reason, I would say it was pursuit of modernity. So this imagination or expectation, hope, that if we base the state and the law on science, on expert knowledge, we can make life of citizens easier and better. And at that time, among psychiatrists, uh, sexual experts, but also lawyers, there was already a consensus that homosexuality was nothing wrong and certainly should not be criminalized. Another reason, I think, was that Poland in 1918, when it emerged as an independent state, it was looking for its distinctiveness, like to show that it's different, in a way also that it's better, of course, it was nationalism to some extent. So it wanted to have different legal solutions, you know, that people can across the globe say, oh, there is this one country that it's so progressive, that it's so special. And part of this process was actually the decriminalization of homosexuality in Poland. If I understand it correctly, the decriminalization happened because this codification commission, which was a body that was constructing the new Polish legal system, they voted almost unanimously to decriminalize homosexuality. What were some of the arguments that were being made to convince them to make that move? And and who was making those arguments? This commission consisted only of men, of course, and the men that had this ambitious goal to make Poland great. So they asked psychiatrists. It was a very new form of knowledge at that time, right? Psychiatry. They asked sexual experts for advice, but they also consulted criminal codes, for example, of Japan. And then they actually realized that especially the sexual experts and psychiatrists agreed almost unanimously that homosexuality should not be criminalized. And arguments were of two kinds. Some of them were 
yeah, we would call them progressive nowadays. They, some sexual experts or psychiatrists said, we don't know what's homosexuality, but it has no traits of a crime, of a sin. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with homosexuals. So certainly it should not be criminalized. But interestingly, they were also homophobic arguments. One of them was coming from eugenics. So this science that believed that we can influence genetics of humankind by administratively deciding who can have children or who cannot. We would certainly say it was a pseudoscience. And some of these experts, they believed that if we persecute homosexuals, they will try to hide, right? And if they try to hide, they will try to have children to seem heterosexual. So they would pass on the genes of homosexuality, the alleged genes of homosexuality on their children. So homosexuality would go on. So we should just stop and let them be. That was certainly a homophobic argument and quite strange from our perspective. Another argument very important was that it was a mental illness. And the person with a mental illness should be treated in a mental hospital, not in prison. Yes, certainly that was a mixture of kind of homophobic and not homophobic arguments, but everybody agreed that the criminal code was not a place to regulate sexuality. And what was the reaction like internationally to this decision at the time? Did it grab international headlines or was it something that went under the radar a little bit? It didn't make big headlines, surely, in Europe, but I think we should understand that it was a different time and the concept of homosexuality was not a common knowledge, I would say. To imagine it better, think about concepts like asexuality or non-binarism. You know, they are relatively new concepts. And a lot of people, once they understand them, they think, oh, this is something that perfectly describes who I am. But for other people, they are puzzling. They are difficult to understand. And I think this was very similar situation was with terms like homosexuality at that time. And for a very long time, people didn't think about themselves in terms of sexual identity. They wouldn't think that sexual acts that they have with other people decide about their identity or they say something or reveal something meaningful about who they are. This is a very modern, very new concept. Do you think there was any noticeable effect or improvement in life for these people, for this group of people who wanted to have sex with people of the same sex? When the decriminalization took place, there is evidence that it actually changed a lot. The topic appeared regularly in the press. It appeared in the theater, it appeared even in the cinema. Of course, very often like comical way or making fun of men wearing female clothing and so on. But the public in Poland became significantly more open. They were sympathetic articles in the press. Even some homosexual men wrote letters to newspapers. Most of them were anonymous, but some of them were not. They were writing under their names, demanding a creation of an association or a group that would connect them, help them to meet each other or pursue their rights. Very shortly after the criminalization, several novels were published that quite openly dealt with the topic. So, for example, in the UK, in the late 1920s, this famous book by Radcliffe Hall was published, The Well of Loneliness, and it was banned and censored by the court in the UK. But 
After only, I think, three or four years, it was translated into Polish and published openly in Poland without any censorship, with a great introduction by a journalist. She called it actually sexual left-handedness. So something that is different from a norm, but it's still not abnormality, just a different variant. And it's 1933. So I think it changed a lot, and especially for homosexuals or people who felt desire for the same sex, they gained representation. They could see that, oh, I'm not alone. And where was the church when all of this was happening? Because we tend to think of Poland as a country where the church has historically been pretty powerful. Did they just sort of sit by and watch all of this happen? Did they have anything to say about it? Catholic Church in the 1920s and 30s was not so much concerned with sexuality and especially not with homosexuality. Hmm. They protested the criminal code, but for other reasons. They were super afraid that the state will try to introduce civil marriages and divorces. And when you think about it, marrying people has been one of the most important functions of the Catholic Church, allowing it to control the population, right? Controlling certain very important sphere of life. And introducing state marriages was seen as an encroachment of their rights on their sphere of influence and power. I haven't found any evidence, any single text published by the Catholic Church or like Catholic press that would address the issue of homosexuality. I don't think they were concerned with it at that time. The big concern, maybe to some extent an obsession of church with sexuality or homosexuality, is a very new development, I believe. And this would be a very interesting topic for research, why and when it became so important for the church to oppose LGBT rights and to fight them. Yeah, and with that in mind, I I wanted to ask you, why do you think Poland is now so far behind other European countries in protecting the rights of LGBTQ plus people? Can you trace any of that back to how the process of this decriminalization happened? I think that actually when we look at the 20th century, Poland was not falling behind other European countries. German states decriminalized homosexuality in the late 1960s. The UK in 1967. Ireland in 1993. Poland has never recriminalized homosexuality and was relatively open. And of course, there was persecution of homophobia. I don't want to be misunderstood, but I don't think it was greater than anywhere else in Europe. The changes and the big homophobia happened actually in the 21st century because it started around 2019, 2020, when it was used by the current president in his presidential campaign and by the ruling party Law and Justice. So they were hoping to gain votes when they were not sure they can win by scaremongering that there is some kind of a plot, some kind of a group. And, you know, this kind of rhetoric has been, I think, relatively rarely used after 1945, because we are aware in Europe and across the world that it's extremely dangerous. But I think for some groups, political groups, it is tempting because, you know, you can build your political power on fear. And that's what the current president of Poland did. I'm not sure they have succeeded. Over 50% of people support same-sex partnerships, for example. So this whole campaign to convince Poles that homophobia is part of their identity is basically faking till you make it. You know, like trying to kind of convince people this is part of identity, like homophobia is Polish. 
but I'm not sure it's working very well. I hope it isn't. And actually, I heard from a friend recently who was traveling. He was traveling first to Berlin and then to Warsaw. And he was saying, actually, he felt more free as a queer person in Warsaw than he did even in Berlin. And he felt like there was more of a diversity of gender expression in Warsaw he experienced in the queer scene than in Berlin, which I found really interesting and maybe not quite what people would expect. And obviously it's a different issue outside of the big cities, but I found that quite encouraging to hear. My partner asked me yesterday when we talked about this interview and he asked me, do you think 10, 15 years ago, uh, Warsaw was more homophobic than it is now? And I said, yes. And I think the paradox of this use of homophobic language is that I think by attacking every day the community, they made it a normal topic, a topic that people discuss. And I think most of people are actually not hateful. Once people realize that it's just a normal topic, that it's not all about sex, it's very often actually about love, after a while they realize, oh, why, why all of this fuss? You know, it's not something that I care about. And I can observe it like I remember my family years ago was ashamed to talk even about it, you know? They would lower their voice when talking about homosexuality. And they don't do it anymore. They just discuss it as a normal topic. So the paradox is that this attacking of the community normalized the topic. And I think it's a huge change. This conversation sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole of LGBTQ history in Europe. And I was curious about what the deal was in my home country of France. When do you reckon France decriminalized sodomy? Oh, the 1950s? 1791. No. Yeah, it was a post-revolution thing. But that is not the same thing as decriminalizing homosexuality. Uh, and I was reading about how it was really just taken out of the penal code because of changing views about like what the legal code was even for. And mm. it didn't really reflect any change in attitudes. But still, fascinating nonetheless. Anyway, I digress. Uh, thank you so much to Camille for talking to us. I love talking to historians who know how to explain their work to idiots like Dominic and me. You can follow Camille on the aforementioned Twitter at Camille Karczewski. Now I guess it's time for some isolation inspiration. What have you been enjoying this week, Katie? This week I wanted to recommend a couple of my favourite French newsletters for all the francophones and French learners out there. Because I think newsletters are actually quite an underrated way of learning languages. They're often written in like a, a less formal, more conversational style than the news. And also it's cool because you can choose a newsletter about something that you're interested in anyway, like a, a hobby or a, a genre of music that you're into or whatever. And this week I thought I would stick with a technology theme after giving bad week to the EU metaverse and recommend my two favourite French tech newsletters. Uh, the first one is called Règle 30. It is by the journalist Lucie Ronfou, who writes a lot about internet culture. And it's about women and the internet, how women get portrayed on the internet, 
questions around the policies of internet platforms, around things like, you know, Instagram's policy on female nipples being visible versus male nipples. Uh, Lucy also covers wider issues around gender, like online transphobia. And in general, she just writes really, really thoughtfully. I always learn something new from her and she gives great reading recommendations and game recommendations. Uh, the other one is Tech Trash, which is a funny French newsletter about tech. The subtitle is Ready to Lose Five Minutes, which is a good judge of the sarcastic tone of it. Uh, it's a mixture of kind of interesting technology stories that I've often missed and uh, the gentle mocking of big figures in the tech world like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, yeah, I just really like it as a newsletter because it's funny and it teaches me stuff. Uh, what about you, Dominic? What have you been enjoying? Well, apart from hanging out in the metaverse, um, <laughs> I was actually in the south of the Netherlands with my Dutch family for a little winter holiday weekend together. And we had that problem of the moment where all of us were sitting around, all six of us, trying to find a film or a piece of TV that we hadn't seen before, no one had seen, but would appeal to everyone's quite diverse tastes. Mm. I really think it's like a problem of the moment. It is the zeitgeist in this era of streaming. There's just too much choice. And I kind of think nostalgically back to the times when we just had TV schedules and a few channels to choose from, and you just had to choose out of one of four programs. It was still a problem, though. Like, you know, the grandma. I would always be wanting to watch one thing and the kids want to watch another. Yeah, it's true. But now there are endless possibilities and I feel like everyone's then even more disappointed because you can't find something that pleases anyone. It's true. But the reason why I'm saying all that is because I found the perfect thing to watch with multi-generational families. Ooh, what is it? It is a Netflix documentary called Inside the Mind of a Cat. Oh. I should be upfront that it's made by a filmmaker from the USA, but it does have some really key European elements. So I've allowed myself to talk about it here, including these amazing Ukrainian sisters who train cats to do unbelievable tricks like jump off a stick really high up in the air down into a onto a pillow. Um, they are called the Savitsky Cats and I've also started following them on Instagram and I feel like my Instagram feed is really zhuzhed up. I also really enjoyed the historical look at the relationship between humans and cats, which is mainly explained in the film by a super cool European paleogeneticist called Dr. Eva Maria Geigel. Among the many fascinating European cat facts I came away with was one about the fact that the demonization of cats by the church in the run-up to the plague probably made the Black Death much more deadly because so many cats had been killed off. Cats that would have killed many of the rodents that were spreading the disease. Right. So really something for all the family inside the mind of a cat. It's on Netflix. I don't believe you won't enjoy it. That sounds great. I'm adding that to my Christmas watching list. Thank you. For my happy ending this week, I want to share some news with you all from the Irish pilot study into the four-day work week. Now, you may remember we talked about the four-day week at length in our episode, Is Friday the New Saturday, just over a year ago. And with this latest research, I wanted to update you on that topic. And it's good news for all of us. We should work less and get paid the same 
and we won't be less productive. That's basically the headline. God damn it, I knew it. The results from the Irish study are just frankly really encouraging. 33 companies decided to take part in the trial, paying their employees the same they would earn for working five days a week, but only asking them to work four days a week. And guess what? Revenue actually rose for 85% of the companies in the trial, Hmm. all whilst employees were reportedly sleeping better. There were fewer cases of stress or burnout. Most of the 33 companies that began the trial in Ireland have said they are hoping to continue with the four-day week. So it's really happy news for everyone, more proof that we can work less and maybe even be more productive. Can we have a four-day working week? Yeah, I'd love that. My uh, producer, Katz, pointed out to me that I need to work out how to do a six-day working week instead of the seven-day working week I do. (laughs) So that's my first goal. As we said earlier, baby steps. Baby steps. That is it for this week. We are really, really looking forward to seeing lots of you at the live recording of our Christmas episode next Monday, December 12th. Don't forget to sign up to support the show on Patreon if you would like to join in the festivities. We would love to see you there. You can also find us on the internet, Instagram at Europeans Podcast and Twitter at Europeans Pod. This week's show was produced by Katie Lee, my co-host, and Wojciech Oleksiak in Warsaw. And we are part of the Are We Europe family. If you are hungry for more European content, go check out their beautiful website and magazines at areweeurope.com. Have a great week, everyone. Bye, guys. Cheers.